0: another episode of the 10 laws podcast with east forest believe it or not this is east forest yes i sound quite different it is because i am ill I, i i hope this isn't like horrible to listen to uh it's just nature does its thing and it changes my voice so here i am uh but i still have an episode for you this week and i recorded it before i got sick so my voice isn't so strange and garbly Uh, But this week, I have an episode with Matt Cracked. Matt is an author and an illustrator, and uh, I'm going to tell you who he is via Peter Broderick. And uh, I just released two of the songs that Peter and Broderick, Peter Broderick and I recorded for our album Burren. That is coming out March 17th, Uh, but we just released the first two singles, Resurrect Inside, and another song called The Baron Burren more on that soon. I hope you're enjoying those songs. Uh, I'm really, really happy to get them out into the world. But when Peter uh, arrived here in December to do the final mix on the album, he had picked up this little book, and he picked it up in Sisters, Oregon, when he was uh, you know, out there. That's where his, his mother lives. And the, the book was called The Field Guide to the Dumb Birds of the Whole Stupid World and it's filled with illustrations and descriptions of birds that are quite humorous and he, had, he and I had lots of belly laughs over this book and it, and it talks each each bird is kind of disparagingly described and we thought it'd be funny if uh, Matt did our album liner notes for the record we were working on. We we didn't go that far, but I did reach out to Matt and I said, "Matt, I love your book. I love talking about creativity." And, and humor is always great. And I'd love to have you on to, to hear more about the process and get into this. So that's what we did. Um, so thanks to Peter for introducing it to me. And thanks to Matt for coming on. And I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it. Uh, and in, when I'm recording this tonight, I'm actually doing one of our monthly Zoom councils. And I just want to say thanks thanks to our council. Our council is on Patreon. I want to say thank you to Carl, Janet, and Catherine, who signed up recently to be council members on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash eastforest. It's a great way to support the project, support this podcast, and all things like that. Um, and I want to thank all our council members who have been supporters for a long time. It means a lot. Uh, I should probably stop talking, but I'll just let you know I'm going to be at South by Southwest soon with Rada. We've gone out there to do a, a panel with Numinous. I believe that is on March 10th, which is a uh, Friday let me see is that correct yes March 10th so it's the weekend before it's like the tech weekend and stuff looking forward to that uh, come come check us out and say hello if you're going to be over in Austin for South By and then after that we're going to be at the Treefort Fest and I'll be playing on Sunday both with uh, Radha to accompany her yoga class earlier in the day and then I'll be doing a, a music set uh, ceremony style in the brand new Treefort Music Hall which is a venue that they're They're rapidly trying to finish right now so that they can use it for Treefort and many other things after that. So I'm very excited to uh, play in that new space and uh, check it out. All those dates are at eastforest.org along with other things that we are announcing in addition to uh, this new record that we're rolling out with Peter Broderick on Bright Antenna Records. So very excited about all that. But for now, we're going to get into this uh, wonderful conversation With Matt Cracked, and I will play you at the end of this conversation uh, that new single, Resurrect Inside. But first, here's Matt.
1: So a little background for our listeners. I was recording music with Peter Broderick, I don't know, a couple, in December he was here, and we were doing a live stream and doing some mixing, and he was in visiting his mom in Sisters, Oregon, and he had picked up this book. And he, he brought it in. He, he was just laughing so much. He's like, man, you got to check this out. And then I was laughing so much. And he left it with me because he, he knew how much I enjoyed it. And I bought one for my dad for his birthday. And it's your book. And it's one of several books you have out there. But um, we'll, 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 we'll read from it and talk about it. But uh, thanks for thanks for being willing to come on the show yeah. just so we can uh, learn more about you, but also just honor what you made. Thank you. I'm super, I'm stoked to be here. Thanks, ma'am. So but I do want to ask some questions about how this was made and who you are and stuff, but I really would love to start with, maybe we could just read something. And I had, yeah. um, so the book is called The Field Guide to Dumb Birds of the Whole Stupid World. And... <laughs> It also has illustrations in it as well. See, people can't really probably see the illustrations unless they're watching this on video. But um, it's it's lots like every page is a different bird, and like this one is this is page seventy eight. This is the tawny fuck munch.
2: <laughs> oh yes, the tawny fuck munch. And that
1: is not its uh, Latin name. This is a, you know every bird gets a new name. It's mm-hmm. got a nice drawing of the bird on a branch. He looks a little grumpy and, uh, it tells us the region they're from, but then it basically is a description of yeah. this bird. And maybe yeah. you could read us about the Tawny fuck munch. <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh, so the Tawny fuckmunch, Latin name Podargus strigoides. I struggle with my Latin pronunciation because my Latin, uh, Education ended in seventh grade. Um, the common name of this bird is the tawny frogmouth, <clears throat> And it's, um, it looks for those who can't see it, it, lo- it looks a little bit like a very small owl. Um, and they're from, uh, well, we'll get into that. So it may look like an owl, but trust me, this big turd is not a real bird of prey. While carnivorous, it's technically a frog mouth and related to the night jars. It's talons and legs are weak as shit. So it only catches its prey mostly insects and slugs, and maybe the occasional frog or slow-moving mouse, with its beak. They are found across most of Australia in multiple habitats, including the suburbs, which they like to disturb with their deep, continuous nighttime grunting. (laughs) Fun fact, tawny frogmouth are nocturnal hunters, but sometimes during the day they will just sit with their mouths hanging open and hope that a bug will fly into it, because they are that fucking lazy.
1: (laughs) All right. There's a little picture of it with its mouth open saying, waiting for a bug to fly in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read one. Please, yeah. Just here. Um, (laughs) This is uh, page 62. The yellow butt gargler. Uh, The common name is the yellow rump warbler, but this is the yellow butt gargler. Uh, Visit any mid-elevation con coniferous forest or suburban backyard in North America, and you'll probably see this little brown and yellow son of a bitch perched somewhere at some point. Technically, it's four different sons of bitches. In the early 1970s, the American Ornithologists Union decided to lump the myrtle black-fronted Goldman's and Audubon warblers into one species because they are all basically the same stupid bird. Predictably, these birds... These bird scientists are now arguing that it should be re-separated into 4C species, a single species, or for one thing is certain. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, t- okay. So now we can go backwards a bit. Why did you—how uh, in the world did you decide to write a book uh, making fun of birds— and calling them all sorts of names and drawing pictures <laughs> sure. of them at the same time.
2: Do you, do you want the shorter version or the long version?
1: Uh, uh, well, slightly condensed. So I know you told okay. me to interrupt you as needed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so yes,
2: perfect. Okay. So, well, the story of how it became a book is connected to the story of my youth a little bit. So let me jump back. We're going to jump back to fourth grade um, public school, Tacoma, Washington, and um, I had this amazing fourth grade teacher. Um, ish, uh, she was fantastic. And uh, there were two, we had just enough students. There were two fourth grade classes in my school. <clears throat> and the other fourth grade teacher and my fourth grade teacher were both kind of bird nerds. They were sort of amateur ornithologists and they were bird watchers and they were competitive with each other about it. And so both mm-hmm. classes got taken on these uh, bird watching field trips. So we'd go to nature preserves or um, uh, we once rafted down the Skagit River and, uh, did eagle watching. And it it was all very cool as a kid. And, and I got super fascinated. Like this was my introduction to, to natural sciences, essentially. And being kind of a nerdy kid, I'm like, I'm into it, right? Like what's better than nature. You get to play in it and you get to learn about it. So, um, anyway, She assigned, um, this was actually the first time I really had homework. I don't think back in 19-whatever that was. uh, They didn't usually give homework to kids that young. But she gave us a project to do over Christmas vacation. um, And it was to write a bird report. And I really wanted to do the black-capped chickadee. um, But this other uh, person in my class uh, raised her hand and, um, and claimed that before I could get to it. And so I ended up assigned the golden crowned kinglet which is practically impossible to see because they're tiny they stay high up in the trees you know the chickadees are everywhere everybody has black capped chickadees or some version Go- of that.
1: golden crown kinglet golden That's, crowned
2: kinglet yeah doesn't sound it,
1: small but it's <laughs>
2: well so the, the kinglets are pretty there's a ruby crown kinglet and golden crown kinglets and the they're like they're not much bigger than a big than a a thumb. They're like pine cone sized and they're okay. olive drab. And this golden crown is on the top of their head, but it's basically just yellow. And so, you know, if you're not up close to them, which you never are, at a distance, they just – they look like another object in the trees. It's really hard yeah, to – difficult to spot, especially for a fourth grader, right? But I have this idea that, like, okay, I'm going to write this bird report. So, obviously, I'm going to go out into the field. I'm going to study this bird, and I'm going to discover something about it, some behavior or amazing thing that nobody knows. Like, this is my idea. I'm going to be the Indiana Jones of bird watching or something. It's going to – or it's going to,
1: like, it's going to land on your third eye <laughs> or something. And,
2: yeah. Uh, I thought, like, this is how science <laughs> is done, right? I've seen movies. And so – um. Long story short, I did not get a. I never saw this bird. I mean, I dragged myself all over, and my shoes got wet. I got cold, and I and I never really saw it. And I sort of gave up early on that because it just seemed impossible. And then, you know, two days before vacation is over, my mom is like, "Have you written your bird report?" And I'm like, "No, because I haven't seen the bird. I can't write it." And she's like, "B.S. You're writing it. There's the family set of encyclopedias. This was back when." you know people still had encyclopedias that was the
1: internet the internet that was was the like internet she said the you have encyclopedias yeah. <laughs> I will
2: take you to the library right and we have this sibley's field guide or whatever and so so i wrote this report you know crying basically on the last day of christmas vacation and and it sucked and i knew it and um and i and i titled it the bird report and uh i turned it in and you know it's this fourth grade so it was fine um but it was the first time i felt i really felt this sort of I always thought like, Hey, I'm smart. I can learn anything. And like, I felt this sort of crushing academic, it was my first brush with academic failure. Let's put it that way. And for some reason that just kind of stuck with me. So anyway, I got over it. I moved on with life. And, uh, years later, this was in, I think, 2017 ish. Uh, I'm taking a walk with my wife. We live in Seattle at this point and we're walking at uh, Lincoln park, which is this gorgeous park along the water. And we're walking along this path. It's, I think it was New Year's Day, actually. And it's bright and crisp out and it's gorgeous and the water is sparkling and I'm just having a great day. And I look to my left and right in the brush, you know, to my right is the water. I look to the left and right in the brush, there is a golden crowned kinglet. <laughs> and... I don't know like I just all of this flooded back to me in that moment and I thought I just thought like if I snap a picture of it like it's like the report is finally complete for me and I'm fumbling to get my phone out and my gloves off and I'm trying to take a picture of this bird and it's just flitting in the you know it's sitting in these low branches and brush It is flitting too fast my phone can't every time I take a picture it's just a blurry thing and it looks just like uh it looks like a, a blurry leaf, like out of focus, basically. And it kind of pissed me off. Um, so I'm back at work the next week and I'm sitting, waiting in a meeting and I am a little irritated because nobody else has shown up and, and I'm, I'm the only one on time. And so I'm, I'm doodling and I draw a little picture of this bird. I, my, uh, my job was creative. I did creative at a big company. And, um, and so I was a designer and, and, uh, and work with designers and writers, and so I, I was always doodling, and and I doodled this little bird, and a friend said, "That's hilarious drawing, but it looks like you were angry when you drew it." And we laughed about the idea of like a an obsessive bird watcher who hated birds. Like it just seemed so absurd. Yeah, yeah.
0: The,
2: <laughs> people who are into yeah, birds, exactly. You know, it's like this this sort of love, but I, but I, I just there was something about it, and so I started writing some of this stuff, and. Uh, at first, it was a blog, and then I got incredibly lucky, and um, and my literary agent reached out to me. Like, like this doesn't happen; literary agents don't contact authors, and said, "Hey, this you do you have representation? This needs to be a book." And and that is how that is essentially the the, the generative yeah yeah you know story of of, of the well
1: book. that's how these things happen, right? I mean, all good art is when it's what excites you. You're yeah like genuinely whether on any level whether it's it whatever something about it lights you up and of course I mean the same thing happened with me in music in a sense that I spent many many years trying to do things that i I don't know I, you also have to find your voice and and there's many hopefully lots of voices you get to express but it's just that genuine aspect of it is what makes it fun for people and yeah uh, yeah it was it
2: was it was <laughs> I like to say I did it as a lark, which is, I, I like puns, uh, but, um, yes, yes, but it was really, it just, you know, when I started the blog initially, it was, uh, so my friend and I had laughed about this and, um, I should say colleague, but he's actually my friend. Um, and we, we laughed about this. We have a similar sense of humor and I thought it would be funny to write a little description of this bird and how much I hated it. And, and I did a couple of them and I put them up on a blog and I did it anonymously just so I could send him a link and say, it's the guy. Look, it's the guy we, tell, we <laughs> laughed about, uh, and that that turned into something. So yeah, it really I did it to entertain myself and one close friend. It was it was just for us, and for some reason it it resonated with people. I never I never expected it to. I didn't set out to, you know, I didn't like I have a great idea for a book and I'm going to write it and get it published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's
1: the how speech. the good things are made.
2: Yeah, it I was mean, a series of serendipitous events that I said yes to because for whatever reason, there was something about this thing that just delighted me. And I thought, why the hell not? Like, yeah, sure. I I would like to have an agent. I mean, I wasn't sitting there trying to become an author, but I thought it would be fun to tell people that I had one, you know, yeah. like at a, at a cocktail party or whatever. You're like, oh, I just got to go for my agent, you know, and then your friends laugh at you or whatever. But <laughs> uh, humor is a big part of my life. If, if, if you haven't figured that out from the book,
1: you're, it reminds me too, like of i used to be a photographer in my 20s when i was living in new york and i forgot that like i would always collect images of people blinking in really horrible ways just in a little folder on my desktop because i thought they were hilarious of just like they put when people looked like terrible but in a weird terrible and i started i forgot all about this i started like putting them in Photoshop to make them all retouched and like cool photos and then put a caption. And it was always the question, like, why did you blink? And I tried to come up with like smarky, ridiculous reasons why the person blinked. And I was, Uh, I was going to put it together. I was like, I don't think anyone would give me their permission to put these horrible photos, but I think I still have them somewhere and I want to dig them up.
2: If you have the, if you still have the, the, their contact info you should do it i think that would be a great book
1: uh, well now i gotta dig it up i mean man some of this shit was on film but <laughs> One uh of the
2: things that man. i i had an idea that i that i haven't done yet i'm still i'm still processing whether i want to attack it or not it's called it, it would be it's just it's meant to be a wall calendar just called sad chefs and i just wanted to collect if you <laughs> if you look at like um like royalty or you know uh licensable art and you search for chef there's all these pictures of these stressed out looking chefs like crouching you know on a outside of their restaurant smoking a cigarette or something and i just thought like but they all look like so miserable in, in these photos and uh, and i just thought it'd be hilarious to do 12 months of sad chef photos.
1: sad chef i mean there's lots yeah i could see so many different ways you could keep going with these themes uh but it's it's very true that it has to be as long as it's something like fun for you i had friends who did a series this is a long time ago before youtube and they were film people crying while eating and the whole site was called crying while eating uh, i think i saw that site yeah well then it it weirdly came back my friend it's like you know sometimes memes they're ready to be birthed like my friend mark uh or mark tom photography recently started doing a series about this too crying while eating and photography and i was like you know my buddies were doing that 20 years ago and they made like a, a website where you could host videos and he even made, eventually, he was I "Remember, he was on the Tonight Show because it was like became like a meme, pre pre YouTube, and yeah. it, people would just film themselves crying and eating whatever." And I think it was just it's funny to <laughs> he's someone crying, and they take like a pause to get a little more cake in their mouth, or like to eat some cereal, or you know, and then they go back to crying. Uh, uh, it's ridiculous, but uh, I
2: don't, you know, what I think is interesting about stuff like that is um, sometimes it's like it, it is ridiculous, but why is it so? compelling and and sometimes it's just compelling to me you know like you need a you need a a check from from your friends like is this funny or is it just me but i think you know crying while eating it's like food is such a big part of comfort and it's like acknowledging it's kind of like why i don't know i think it's acknowledging it's taking pain right and and being with that pain even if it's someone else's like it's so Mm -hmm. we're so um used to avoid pain avoiding pain emotional pain physical pain all of that stuff and it probably makes sense right in a lot of ways but we're just really uncomfortable even with seeing other people's pain and that's why sometimes some of the biggest laughs in movies or something where you feel bad laughing is like when somebody something happens to somebody yeah and and I, I do have wondered if, if like, there's a, there's this through line sort of in, in stuff like crying, you know, sad chefs crying while eating, maybe even a guy who's angry at birds is that it's this recognition of a certain type of pain that none of us feel that we're able to acknowledge in some way. And then by acknowledging it and then, and really em- embracing the, the humorous aspect of it, that it's almost sort of. I don't know if it's cathartic for people to laugh at it or if it just is a guilty pleasure or what, but like, I don't care. I just, well, maybe with your book,
1: it's our, um, our self-consciousness. Did you know that house cats, I think are the number one killer of birds? I did know that. Yes. Yeah. It's some insane number of birds and maybe deep down we feel really bad about that that we've just put these murderers out on the streets. They're just just (laughs) indiscriminately killing birds. Maybe eat them, largely no. Maybe just play with them, torture them to the death, Mm -hmm. rip their head off, you know?
2: Yeah, well, there's this larger, like, I think, like, um, that's, there's that, and that's a really really direct thing that, like, okay, well, we've we've domesticated cats, and then we let them outside, and they're basically these little killers. They can't help it. But uh, also, I think, you know, if you look at, what we're doing to the environment, i'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute. What we're doing okay. to the environment as 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 humanity right and the ways that we're screwing it up have these sort of uh consequences that are not immediately visible but but that are like we're all sort of aware of it like we're sort of aware of the fact that we're messing up the climate and if you're sort of aware. aware. Yeah. yeah, if you're sort of aware of that, then you might be sort of aware that that's killing off a lot of pollinators like bees and various insects and things. And you kind of think like, well, so some insects die. Who care? I hate insects. But there's all these birds that then live on that, right? And then what do the cats eat? You know what I mean? When the birds are dead. So we've created this this sort of you know thing where we're having these we're dropping these pebbles and the ripples are are bigger. And we don't like to acknowledge that because um, it's inconvenient to think like you know, I probably shouldn't let my cat outside and I probably shouldn't drive a car that uses gasoline and I probably shouldn't do all these things. And you have this sort of guilt and shame, I think. And so then again, acknowledging it and laughing about it is maybe, I don't know, part it's of a it. It's a
1: diffuser. It's it, I mean, hu- yeah. humor and comedy, it's like I mean, I said this to Duncan Trussell on the show. That I was like, I think you know, comedians maybe are the modern shamans. And he's like, Oh Christ, never tell some shaw, never say to some comedian that he he thinks he's a shaman. But what I'm trying to say is like, you know, they're like the court jesters. That especially today, it's like it cuts through on a lot of levels. One things we need to release energy, we need to release, but also shining a light on some of the problems. uh, I I think that's true.
2: And, and, you know, like, so in, in the books that I've done, so that I've done two bird books, I have a book about bees coming out in, uh, on the 28th of March, uh, called OMFG bees. And, um, I don't, you know, in my writing, I, I like to be informative, right? I don't, I don't, so I'm not shooting for educational. I'm shooting for funny. And, but I do that by looking at the, the actual facts of these little creatures. And I find something that's interesting to me and I find a way to joke about it. And, but I, I never sit there and go like, we're screwing up the environment and and we suck and we should change everything. There's a little bit of that at the end of bees because they're so critically important to like,
1: yeah, that one actually, actually is the, like, the we ecosystem. Might die. like those yeah. are gone, we're screwed.
2: <laughs> but, um, but, but I think that like, just like, there's a certain level, like what, I, what, maybe I'm patting myself on the back, but I think that like when people read something like who are not going to read about entomology and like I dove, I dug through so many like peer reviewed scientific journals and read the most God awful, boring scientific stuff to, to get at what was funny about them. And, and people aren't going to do that. But if you write this cute little thing and it's kind of funny and you laugh all the way through it and you learn something about it, but guess what? Now, every time you go outside and you see a bee, it's not just that thing, a bee that you see sometimes and maybe you're afraid of being stung, but it's like, shit, this is like this tiny little member of the life on this planet that I am intimately connected with, whether I want to be or not. And so I think maybe same thing with birds is that people, people love birds in part because they're wonderful to, to watch and they're fascinating, but we're like all connected to them. Like we are a part of nature, whether we recognize that anymore or not, like we're animals too.
1: Well, I'm going to read one more. This is the, uh, yeah. the red tailed fuck commonly named red tailed Hawk. Look at this smug Fuck. You can tell he thinks he's some kind of hot shit, but don't be fooled, But he, because he often gets chased around by smaller birds, such such as crows. He can be found just about anywhere in North America, even in big cities like New York, which might be why he's such a prick. He sometimes kills pigeons, so that's a plus. But basically, he's just another asshole with talons and a high opinion of himself. <laughs> it's got a picture of this red-tailed hawk, and it says on the tail always showing off that bright red tail. No one cares. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. (sighs) It's funny, man. You know, like, speaking of, like, cats, for instance, like, yes, it's true. They're the biggest killer of birds. And I think the second biggest killer of birds, I think, is windows. And it's not like we're not going to get rid of windows. It's just, you know, it's horrible, you know, when you see a bird just smash into a thing. It's like, it has no way of knowing that thing's there. Can you imagine if us, like... Just every now and then uh, there's the equivalent for a human being. It's like, you know, sometimes the ground disappears and you just, (laughs) you're gone. You know, you can't see it coming.
2: If people, you know, what you can, there are things that are recommended. If you have like a window that birds fly into a lot, maybe it's a big window or maybe it's the placement. Sometimes it's the fact that like, uh, it's interesting. There's a, now I, I forget the name. There's an architect who has started designing buildings uh, specifically to avoid problems like this, but like what happens to people, like they have a like some beautiful trees in their yard, right? And then they place this big window so they can look at it. And from the outside, that yeah. window is just a big mirror. It just looks like more trees. And it's the birds is guillotine. like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna fly through those trees. It's a trap for them basically. So yeah, so this architect has started designing with certain types of glass that are non-reflective from the outside, and and so that we can, you know, it's like people aren't going to not have windows to your point, but that there are things that we can do if we're aware of it. But you can put common, bells. You
1: can put bells on cats,
2: right? You can put bells on cats. The common yeah. thing they say is like, oh, you know, put tape streamers and and doodads and stuff to your windows, put stickers, and it's like, yeah, you can do that, and that will help the birds. And most people aren't going to do that because they're like get my house, the outside of my house looks like shit now. Right. I just have shit taped to my windows yeah, and like fluttering don't do that yeah. It, yeah, people don't do that. Some people do. Some people who are like, they're more motivated to avoid birds flying into their window than to, you know, they're, <laughs> they, they're not, they're, I guess they're, they're not, they're not house proud. Let's put it that way. And, but the, for a lot of people it's, you know, we have these sort of societal norms that we, that we stick to. Um, well, I talk it, in my,
1: go, go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. I talk
2: talk in my book about bees that's coming out on March 28th, but you can pre-order now. Um, Okay. We'll put it in show
1: notes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, That, uh, you know, like to a bee who who is a pollinator, like a perfectly manicured lawn is basically like a, just a field of death for them. There's nothing for them to, they need pollen and they need nectar, right? This is what they live on. And they go out and, and they expend a certain amount of energy flying out to, uh, hopefully get enough food energy when they take back that it's, you know, it's, they're not essentially wasting energy, right? Because they have only enough to get out and back. Um, so if yesterday there was a big pile of clover on your lawn and, and then today you mowed it down or you, you, you killed it off with weed killer or something and they, they fly back to the spot and there's no food, they've wasted all this energy. Um, So I talk in the book about how like, you know, you could, you could stop mowing your lawn for one thing, or you can wait until the weeds have flowered in which giving the bees a chance to, to do this. But like most people aren't going to, we have this unending war to take this natural thing, grass. We, we plant grass and then we, weed and feed it to try to keep it green in the summertime, which is, and we pour water on it, which is crazy because grass wants to be Brown and it wants to be long. Um, and but we're like no it's gotta look like a carpet it needs to look like you know grass is weird
1: yeah it's it's strange
2: yeah but but it's very you know like these are things that like we're super used to like people you could tell everybody like hey just don't have a lawn in fact i'm on a mission to get rid of to get rid of my lawn and replace it with something that's you know like a rain garden makes a lot of sense out here and letting letting some some things for pollinators grow, but it's
1: hard to sometimes hard to talk your spouse into things like this.
2: Actually, she's on board with it, but for a lot of <laughs> it's people, It's harder right? than you, you think like- in
1: the, nor- in the Northwest, getting rid of grass is not always as easy as you'd think yeah. It is a way of coming back.
2: Yeah. Well, it's not about getting rid of grass so much as like what, like you can just let the grass grow. The grass will grow and clover will grow in it. Weeds will grow in it. Dandelions will grow in it and bees and birds and other pollinators will be super happy about that. The birds will love it because there'll be more bugs. Um, but what we do is we mow it down and keep it real short and we try to eliminate the weeds. And I think, you know, that's, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, it doesn't accomplish anything except for making us feel like we fit into our neighborhood, I guess. Like you don't want to be the one house with the crappy yard.
1: Yeah. I think in Portland, there was actually a law that if it got over a certain height, technically you could be cited or something like, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah. God, that's God's a weird one coming from portland because it's such a I, I,
1: no, that's, that's what i'm saying it's like you'd be surprised but but i bet you that's yeah.
2: leftover from you know that's like a law that got on the books in 1960 they, they have
1: laws on the books about like blowjobs being illegal because it's <laughs> sodomy from like 1848 yeah. so i mean yeah. and let me tell you like i don't think that stopped them in 1848 um when When Peter was here, we were joking too. It was like, what if we had you, uh, we hired you to write our liner notes for the album? And we were sitting there (laughs) joking about it. Because usually, you know, it's always like, you know, Peter Broderick has played with, you know, the Boston Symphony. And just be like, these two assholes, you know, (laughs) I thought they could write some new age crap. And here they are with another rendition of their. (laughs) <laughs> well, i'd be happy needs. to
2: do it for you if you know if you've got a thick <laughs> enough skin um actually I, one of the reasons I enjoyed writing about uh, birds is that they can't read and so nobody's feelings get hurt um so I, ch- I try pretty hard not to make fun of people especially not groups of people um that seems shitty to me and uh and I think you can be humorous without doing it although i do i will take a a type of person you know like I do poke fun at bird scientists who take themselves too seriously and so i'm not talking about anybody in particular but i think that's one of the other things that uh, weirdly ornithologists and like natural biologists have really taken to this book and perhaps because they recognize in some colleague you know when i talk about some pursed-lipped academic who's pissed off because somebody changed the taxonomy of a bird you know like how do you not laugh at that you know that's like you know somebody in your field or you can imagine somebody like that and you're like yeah that's stupid birds are just fun to watch so
1: that's when like the map becomes the territory right like in any yeah. the, any field where you just get it's like come on it's like pull your pull your beak out of your ass a little yeah. bit uh get your head above water just to be remind ourselves that's like yeah uh we don't get too into the details
2: the science is really important and i like i'm a, actually a huge fan of science and scientists but i think that if the the pleasure in the, just the miraculousness of take any bird and start looking at like its feathers, its beak, its eyes and its behavior and and it's just fascinating. And they're usually really beautiful in some way, shape or form. And they're just these, I don't know, they're just endlessly fascinating and it's enjoyable. Like people, people put feeders in their yards so that they can just look at birds eating, right? Like why do people do that? So yeah, I think when people get really into the science or the, or even the sort of um, politics of academia or, or environmentalism or things like that, like wh- what is most important maybe to most people that just that sort of rudimentary connection to nature and feeling like connected to it is, is the enjoyable thing. The science is important because we don't want to lose that connection, but uh, you have to, I think, you know, humans. Probably like watching birds because it makes them feel connected to nature. That would be my guess.
1: Yeah. And, and they're, they're beautiful. And, and typically they have pretty songs. And I mean, yeah. but it's, it's, look, it's just, it's fun. It's funny to like pick apart <laughs> things that we don't normally pick apart yeah. too. That's also, I'm sure a yeah. lot of the, the humor. I yeah, mean, I love, all, I love just all the different names. You just come up with them for, you've got the African suck puppet on the back. <laughs> <laughs> the
2: rock pippet. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. I mean, that's a big, uh, that's often how I start is like, I, I see a bird that looks like it would be fun to draw and it has a name. And now it's sort of like, uh, I can't help it. Like for a while I had to like focus on it. But now when I see the, the common name of a bird, my brain instantly starts trying to rhyme it with like foul words and, and, you know,
1: you got the California smug jerk, the goddamn magpies, yellow butt gargler.
2: Yeah. Some of them, you know, I hope I I, I usually try to, to make it so that like if you if you're familiar with this bird, like you're going to recognize what it is by the by the sort of schoolyard name that I give it. Somebody who actually complained about my book on in an Amazon review was like, he's good. <laughs> he just gives them like sc- schoolyard insulting names. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, that's right. That's it is what I do. And it's funny. A lot of people think so.
1: Yeah, they didn't get it. You know, if you're not pissing off a few people, it's not very good art, right? That's the... Uh, I agree. That's yes,
2: good. I agree. I mean, like, and nothing is for everyone. If you've written something that is for everyone, then I guarantee you it's garbage. Um, it wouldn't
1: be published. <laughs> or maybe... Well, it be might harder. be. Uh, and it could <laughs> it even be, be really
2: popular, but it's not going to be good <laughs> art. You know what I'm saying? Like, is because you're writing for... Like, I don't write for everyone else. I write, I write for me. I write the stuff... Like, if it's not funny, I don't write it. And... It was not funny to me. I should say whether it's funny, it's up for everyone else to decide. But Warhol had a great quote about art. He said, uh, "While everyone else is trying to decide if it's good or bad, make more art." Right? Like, so you, may, you make yeah, a piece, yeah. and then you for, you put it out there, and you forget about it because the, your job is making the art, and everyone else can argue whether it's art or crap or whatever. But, and I've been lucky because people have enjoyed what I've done.
1: Yeah, you were telling me before that like you did have to take a leap of faith a little later in your life than maybe into the creative field. And that too, that sort of key decision uh, to follow your creative inklings and bliss
0: mm-hmm. was critical. So yeah. I mean,
1: often I find that people are either pushed that way, like life, something happens where you actually, it's almost like the decision is made for you or that it's, it's sort of like, that opportunity comes up again and again in different ways in your life until you finally say yes. Like the soul sets up the lesson until you learn idea. Yeah. I, th- uh, I mean,
2: I think, I think that's true for me. Um, it, it, you say like I jumped into it later in life and that's true in one sense, but it's also not true at all. I just avoided it for a lot of my life because when what I was it, a, like, yeah. when I was a kid, like all I wanted to do was draw pictures and write stories, right? Like I was always working on it. I would have like a, like a, th- a little notebook of, you know, wide ruled paper and, and, um, and I would be writing a story about pirates or ghosts or something like that and would draw pictures to go with it. And this is, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book, right? Like, because... you know, what could be better? My parents would have to be like, you need to go outside now and climb a tree or something because, you know, you're going to atrophy physically if you just stay inside doing this. And, um, fortunately I enjoyed climbing trees a lot too, but, uh, yeah, but that's like what I wanted to do. And then, you know, I won't give you my whole life story, but I ended up, you know, I went to school and studied art. I went to college thinking that I would, uh, go into science actually. Right. Like I was good at, pretty good at math and, and I really liked science. And I thought chemistry or physics, this is like my jam. <clears throat> Turns out you need to be good at calculus for both of those things. And it's,
1: that's always the thing that fucks you uh, up. It I suck so too.
2: hard at calculus. Like I had dropped the class. I talked to the professor and we both agreed I should drop the class. And this is on like day five. I'm just like, I don't, you know, like I thought I was good at math. I got an A in AP mathematics in high school, but this is like a thing my brain just won't do. And, uh, and so I wasn't sure. So I, so I thought, well, I got to figure out what I'm doing, but I'll, I'll switch to, I think I switched to a creative writing class or an art class. I don't remember which, and it reminded me like, oh yeah, I really, really like writing. I really, really like art. And so then, then that is what I studied. And, um, and then I got out of school and thought I'm going to be a famous artist. Um, because I had, I guess, more credits in printmaking than creative writing or something like that. And, and immediately, you know, I'm like 20 something. So I'm bad with managing my money and I'm enjoying myself too much and I'm not getting a lot of work done, but I'm living life. And eventually I got sort of tired of, you know, I don't know, always being worried about money essentially, because as a, as a straight artist, they teach in, it's interesting. I don't, this might be a little different now, but when you study art in school, they teach you how to be an artist. They don't teach you how to be a business person. They don't teach you about how to get paid yeah, as an not. artist. Because if, I, I hate to say this, but I really think like, uh, at least traditional, the traditional academic art world is like, all it does is produce new art teachers because you send some, you teach them how to be an artist and how to learn about art, not how to provide for themselves. And there's really no like job market for artists. You have to go out and make it yourself. So what happens is you, you can't. And so you're like, well, I want to keep making art. So what I'll do is I'll teach, I'll teach art classes on the side. And then pretty soon, then you've got all these, you know, 60 year old art teachers who are just like teaching art classes and maybe they, maybe they're doing a show once in a while or whatever, but they're, you know, I just, so I ended up uh, in a, in a, parallel or let's say adjacent field I went into design because I thought well I can get paid pretty well to do this and it's a lot like art like it's the same principles like visual, it's a lot visual. like art <laughs> well it it is but it isn't I mean like sometimes you can do a piece of art and use it in a design but ultimately design is when you create something based on someone else's specifications you're Fits given an assignment
1: a form. Yeah. yeah
2: and so and I was doing um you know visual design Uh, graphic design. And so, uh, I might have, you know, I have to, it's a creative problem that you attack and often you're using principles of, of, um, balance and color and, and how to move the eye around and all these things you learn about in art school. But what your, your goal is to communicate, like, this is the best coffee you can get. So come to this coffee shop and get it. Um, and you're not at the end of the day, you put, you you use all that creative effort to serve someone else's usually commercial purpose. Not always. I mean, I've done pro bono work for foundations and things like that. by the way, uh, man, people who aren't used to paying for design are terrible clients, even if they're doing something (laughs) great for the world. You Um, you
1: mean other artists? Yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) I mean, I, it's, it is hard to, uh, turn any of this stuff into commodity. Same thing's true with music. Yeah, or any yeah. art it is hard to like you weave it into the world of commerce
2: you well you can't i mean you can and so like you could like i'm sure you have the the knowledge and skill and experience you could take a job writing a jingle for a company right and then we say like we like how you like how your music sounds could you do like a, a thematic um well five second music piece that we can use as a bumper on our videos every time. And it'll become associated with our brand and you could take money to do that. But, but to some extent, you're not making that music because it's coming out of you. You're making that music. Somebody asked you to do it and they're going to decide if it's good enough, at, you know, to pay you yeah, or whatever. It's
1: hard. It, it's also not as fun. Like film yeah. scoring is something that I'm very cautious to do one. Cause I know how hard it is. And anytime I've done stuff like that, it takes a lot of time, but it's a very different way of writing. Yeah. You're know, trying to like fit a, a yeah. you know a, a brief or a cue like the length. Everything has to be fitting to like what it is. And yeah. it, it is admirable, you know, when you do that kind of work of oh, any kind yeah. of art because it, it is actually quite difficult to like, put yourself aside a little bit. And yeah,
2: yeah, I spent job. I spent a quarter of a century in the in the design and create. You know, pr- I'm air quoting for the listeners. Creative professional world, right? And I had a pretty I had a pretty successful career in it. I did pretty well and I got to work on some super cool projects and actually I met some of the greatest people in the world that I, like they're still you know haven't haven't been in that for a while but like my closest friends are still from that because they're other creative people who were using their talents to do this. And so what's interesting is they all have this other thing that they do, right? Like I'm a I'm a writer, right? I'm a copywriter right. and I write copy and they write great copy, but that guy is a musician. He's in a band. And this other person who, you know, is, is a film director or whatever. He also makes his own films or writes children's books or, you know, whatever. And so it's just, I, I really enjoyed being around the creative people and using, like, I have this, like, I like to solve creative problems. My brain just likes to do it. But to get back to my story of this sort of roundabout, you know, this, this long well, there was a time when you great.
1: decided to to leave that comfort. Yeah, I think that well, was it, interesting it, to me.
2: It, it sort of got decided for me. I got laid off. And what I there what you I go. chose what it so I got I got shoved out of the door of that world. And what I the, the the choice that I made was to not go back in because typically when you get laid off when you're at my level, you take a couple months off and then you start applying at other big companies. Um or sometimes small companies that everybody just wants to work for because they're cool. Um, and you get another job like the one you had. It's going to be a little different. You'll be selling a different thing. You'll be working in a different culture. You'll meet different people. But ultimately, you're you know you're you're getting back in there and you're doing that. And I, I said, oh, I'm going to take a little time and think about what I want to do next. And I didn't have to think about it very long. I realized I don't I don't want to go back. I've done that for 25 years, and there is this sort of internal itch that has been unscratched for all this time. That's um, it.
1: That's the key, right? The internal itch. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, you know, like knocking I need on to, your, your door I need to
2: do my own thing. And it was interesting the day that I, the day that I got laid off, um, along with everybody in my department, basically, uh, you know, of course we went out, had some drinks and I, I took a cab home and, and on my front step was a, a box that had been delivered. And it turned out to be the, uh, the advanced copy of my first book, Um, you know, which I sort of, it had been this sort of side, I wouldn't even call it a side hustle because I wasn't hustling. It was just like, I got like, Hey, we should publish a book. Okay. I'll get an agent. Hey, here's a publisher who wants to do your book. Okay. We'll never sell any, but fine. I'll finish the book. Oh, here's the copy of your book that's getting published now. And I opened it up and I just thought, you know, like maybe, I don't know if I believe in signs exactly, but but in the way that you can sometimes if you if you're struggling with something you can just flip pick any some people it's the bible some people it's other texts but you can literally like you can flip any book open and read a paragraph with and and often there'll be something if you're lensing it through like this thing that you're struggling with there's something there that's going to speak to you it's going to give you some information and i don't think it's because the universe made you pick that paragraph it's because the you know what you need to do is, is already there in you you're just struggling with accepting that or, uh, you know, so I saw this book and I, I just, you know, it had been this series of like, do you wanna do this? Yeah, okay, 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 I was saying yes and then things kept happening and I thought I'm just gonna say yes to this. And so I made the very, this was the very scary decision at, at you know, age 40, I was 48 at the time I think and to not go back to a really successful career, to instead do this other thing that statistically no one, you know, like you don't, don't, if you want to make money, don't become an author because it's like saying like, I want to make money and I like playing basketball. You can't just go play for the NBA, right? Like there are a lot of great basketball players who never get the opportunity to do that because there's only so many spaces, you know? So I've been incredibly lucky and, you know, maybe it's because, I don't know. It's just, just dumb luck. Nothing means anything. Or maybe it's because I was meant to, I don't really, I try not to worry about that. too
0: much. Again,
1: I think it goes back to, because you're, you're following something that's authentic for you. And that's really a critical piece here. And I think that's also inspiring for anyone who's got that, that itch uh, themselves. And I think that is the North star that needs to be kept in mind for everybody.
2: I think yeah, that's important. Some I've had uh, people. Uh, there are better writers than me who I know who've been struggling to get a novel published for like a decade, and and they're like, "How did you do it? How did you get your agent?" And they hate the answer, which is like, you know, it. They called me, man. They it fell into my lap, and I just said yes, you know. Uh, but the th- the thing that allowed that to happen was I m- I made the work, and I. I put it out there and also I wasn't, I was totally not precious about it because I didn't see it as something I was putting out for other people to consume. You know, it was just for me and, and a friend. And uh, so the, the fear of failure was extremely low for me when I created this stuff because
1: well, that's a kind of freedom in itself, yeah, it, it was, right? It was and you loosen freedom. the grip, you loosen yeah, the grip. And then I was just important.
2: authentically my, I did this thing that I thought was funny that actually I i thought, God, if this ever becomes a book, birdwatchers watchers everywhere are going to hate me. I'm going to have to like hide my face. So, the opposite. Yeah, is,
1: yeah, the opposite has yeah, happened. A mob, a mob, of bird watchers. <laughs> yeah, come out. the they opposite, opposite you has happened. Far which, away.
2: Yeah, it surprised me, but I think that I was just able to be authentic doing it. So when people are like, "Well, how you know I, I have this thing? How should I do it?" I'm, I think like man, first of all, make sure you're doing it for you. If, if you're not, if you're like doing it because you think like, this is a good way to get to X or Y it's just going to be harder. It's not impossible, but it's going to be harder. But then, then accept the fact that like, if you're doing it for you, this it comes back to Andy Warhol quote, right? If you're doing it for you that the world is going to decide whether you're doing good art or not. And that could just have to do with what, you know, when you're doing it or who sees it or, or whatever, it's not like that's out of your hands. What's in your hands is do you get up and do you do that work? And do you put it out into the world where where people can get at it? I mean, you need to try to put it where where people who you think are gonna enjoy it might be likely to well, find it, it.
1: But I think the act of just creating it is more than enough, whether or not it's considered quote unquote good art, it's it's art. It's just yeah, you know, if it's popular, it becomes popular, fine. And if it's not doesn't mean it isn't uh yeah. good. I, but yeah. the, the act of creation is just like the most important thing uh, for any of us, no matter what we do with it, whether it becomes a public form or not. And yeah. so I think that's why you did this because you're enjoying making it. And so, yeah. you know, the fact that it got out yeah. there in the world and it is a thing for you and becomes part of a job, that's amazing. That's cool. But yeah. it's like, I, I feel so incredibly
2: grateful all the time. I mean, it is a struggle at times for sure. Um My finances are, you know, like you, you don't know how much you're going to get paid each year. And, um, and it's largely dependent on does your book do well or not? And that's affected by things like, like the book that you have was, uh, supposed to come out, uh, three months earlier, which would have positioned it to be like a great gift for Christmas gifts, but because of COVID stuff it sat on a ship and came out after Christmas. So, which is like not the, you know, end of December is not the best time to launch any product. Generally speaking, it's done. It's actually done really well. And in part, because I had the first book, you know, so I already had a bit of an audience, so it's, it's worked out all right. But my, my advice is like, man, do it because you love it. Like whatever you're doing for, for money, like don't quit your day job until you feel pretty, confident that this other thing's going to work out because you can do it on the, on the side. And the thing is, is if you're enjoying doing that, and even if it never turns into some lucrative career, um, you're still doing it, right? Like, isn't that better than not doing it? Yes. It isn't, is it like my wife and I <laughs> talked about, you know, she left corporate before I did, like she was really burnout. She had this really high level, high stakes, um, high demand jobs in corporate for, for many years. Um, Believe it or not, she's a librarian. She's a corporate librarian. She studies, uh, um, what do they call it? Uh, competitive intelligence. She's a competitive intelligence analyst. Jeez. And yeah, it's like a spy, but but not undercover. Sorry. But anyway, so she left first. And, and then when I was like, honey, I'm, you know, I lost my job. And I don't think I want to go back to another one. And we decided to take that plunge and just sort of follow our paths because we both, well, you know, we're not getting younger and you, you know, I like, I was already feeling like a lot of regret in a lot of ways. Like I don't now, but I felt regret for all those years I hadn't been making art because I was using those same muscles and, and to, to make design for a company. And, and we just decided, you know, like uh, let's we have this this vision or this dream of like how it was centered around like what kind of lives do we want to lead like what do we want our life to be like every day when we get up like how do I want to feel what do I want to spend my day doing because we have a limited number of them and and for me that's like making art and writing and 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 like I we just like especially when you're starting out you're like I don't know if anything will ever come of that I could do that I'm 52 years old I could do that for 10 years and never make a great living at it. And then I'm 62 years old and at some point I'm going to be, you know, wanting to settle down and and relax or whatever. But I was just like, well, no, I'm never going to, Hey, first of all, I'm never going to stop wanting to make art or writing. So I'm just going to keep doing that anyway, but you don't know if it's going to work or not. But, but at the end of the day, if it, if it didn't work, if you're on your deathbed and all those years you spent writing or making music or, or, creating your movie or whatever it is that you're passionate about. If you're on your deathbed and you spent all those years doing it and it didn't turn into quote unquote success, isn't it still like a win over lying on your deathbed and, and thinking like, I wish I would have tried that to see. Right. And, you know, it's like better to.
1: It's better always to f- good to take a risk. And I would just say, may we all have the privilege to be, to even be able yeah. to. And uh, that is my prayer for the world. But um, with the time we have left, I would love it if maybe you could read one more and I can yeah. suggest some if you like, Please. what's your, I don't know. Do you have a favorite? I don't, uh, you know, I've, bird? I've tried to figure
2: that out. People always ask me and the truth is I, I don't have a favorite. I, love I would them all. say
1: either maybe the Himalayan Woodfucker or the <laughs> stupid eyes. Let's do, uh, oh, stupid boy. eyes is one Oh eight. That's a very auspicious number.
2: Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay.
1: One Oh eight. Well, let's do that then. Um Okay, the so stupid eyes is a drawing of a little bird that's gray and sort of yellow with kind of big bulgy eyes.
2: Yeah. So uh, the common name of this bird is the silver eye. Um sometimes it's called the wax eye or white eye, because they have like they have little black eyes like a lot of little birds, but then they have this big ring it's of like a white big eye <laughs> feather around them. And so it makes it when you look oh, at okay. it makes their eyes I look see. like a huge eye. Um, looking at you. Yeah. If you're looking at the drawing, that white part is actually, it's actually part of the plumage it's feather. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And so it gives, but it gives the impression of this really huge eye with this really little pupil. So, um, stupid eyes common throughout the islands of the Southwest Pacific. This chatty little songbird is only about four inches. And for such a tiny bird, it sure packs an awful lot of stupid. It's small enough to easily slip through bird netting and dine on fruit but it still forages for insects on the ground, which incidentally is where most cats live. As if that isn't dumb enough for a small bird, you will often find the chicks on the ground with the parents. It's incredible that any of these fuckwits survive. (laughs) And the description is, prominent white eye rings make it look perpetually alarmed, as though it has just noticed a cat approaching, which is a real possibility for this miniature imbecile. (laughs) Let's do. Thanks, we have time. Man. Let's do the other one. Let's yeah. do. Yeah, let's yeah, do the Himalayan woodfucker real quick. So the Himalayan woodfucker, also known as the Himalayan woodpecker, uh, quite common in the Himalayas and the northern regions of the Indian subcontinent. This pied piccadilly, which is the bird family, is interchangeable with nearly every other goddamn woodpecker in the world. Medium sized, black and white. The males have a red crown. It forges tree trunks for insects. We get it already. Fun fact: the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Has listed uh, this bird. Uh, has listed this bird's conservation status as being of least concern because who the hell cares?
1: <laughs> who the hell cares? Who the I love it, cares? man. <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, letting us read some of this and you know getting a little bit of insight into your process and the creation. It's it's always fun to sort of look under the hood behind the cover as it were yeah thanks
2: so much it's been super fun Forrest and um, I always love talking to other creative people uh, about anything process creativity whatever so it's been great
1: yeah well if you do have I'll put that pre-order link for the bees book I look forward to seeing that in the show notes if you can send it my way and um, maybe we'll catch up again sometime
0: soon
2: for sure sounds
0: good All right, thanks Matt thank you Thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, You can check out his book, The Field Guide to Dumb Birds or the Whole Stupid World. He's got a couple other books too, and the new one's called OMFG Bees. Put a link down there in the show notes. There are a lot of cards. I got one for my dad as a little gift for him. The song you hear in the background is called Resurrect Inside. Peter and I recorded 12 songs in Ireland back in April. This was one of the ones we recorded. I think we recorded it. We're coming up on Easter, so we we're thinking of, of, of things around resurrection and what that meant thematically, uh, not just in the biblical sense, but in the uh, about renewal and, and hope. So uh, check it out in its full glory anywhere you listen to music. There will be a vinyl pre-order, beautiful vinyl, for the whole 12-song Burren album from Bright Antenna Records soon. And uh, the whole record comes out March 17th. Until then, thanks to our Patreon folks. Council, patreon.com slash eastforest. You guys keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit, but if you do, do it great.